You can take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Um, I'll share with you a little bit about um, where my heart and my head are this morning. Um, and I do this with a little bit of reservation because um, I'm admitting that I'm not entirely sure that, um, that I'll, I'll, I'll be able to do what I want to do to the extent that I want to do it. Um, I want to press on through Philippians chapter 1. But I think probably if you're paying attention last week, um, just in the fact that we, we just spent our time so much in one verse, you probably picked up on um, um, at least that, the oddity of that. We normally spend more, more time than that on one. We don't spend that much time on one verse. But you probably picked up on the burden that I have that we're clear about these things at the beginning of the letter uh, to the Philippians. And these things that I want to be clear about are the gospel. Um, I don't want to run through the first chapter of Philippians, uh, running roughshod over the verses, intent to stay only in this passage and only in this letter, and and neglect um, the really important uh, parts of the gospel that this letter is referring to and calling our attention to without, at this point in chapter 1, explicitly explaining. Now, in chapter 2 we get a pretty explicit explanation of these things. But I feel like we need to make sure we understand it from the beginning. And so that's, that's what I was doing last week. And I have something similar in mind um, this week. Um, there's a part of verse 6 that we didn't touch last week. And um, it's my fault for not touching it and not, not getting to it like I wanted to. Just my own limitations there. But I don't want to neglect it or miss it and just plow through the letter. So let's read the first six verses together, and then I'll give you a better idea of what I mean by this. Paul is writing, uh, Timothy with him. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, um, I really wanted to make sure that we understood the gospel rightly um, before we got deep into this. And my focus was specifically on the sovereignty of God in salvation and the fact that that makes Christians, uh, that makes God's people special. And you can feel like there's nothing else in the world special about you. But if God has, has chosen to adopt you as his son or his daughter in Jesus Christ, that, that in and of itself, barring any other extraordinary thing about you, makes you special, and it makes your life meaningful and purposeful. And from that, we transition through Ephesians uh, into kind of what Paul is getting at here. Notice it says in verse 6, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. In other words, God is sovereign in our salvation and begins this work inside of our hearts. And then God is the one who continues to, to work on it until, there's a reference here, He will complete that work. And many times throughout the scripture, we see this imagery of God as the potter 
and people as the clay. In other words, God is at work in his people. And the transformative work that God does is by the Holy Spirit through the preaching and teaching and the reading and understanding of his word. And that word that transforms then makes the vessel that's being worked on useful to God. It begins to accomplish things and to do things for God that it could not previously do. Um, much the same as you, you, you take a lump of clay and you say, hey, drink some water out of this. And you can't do that. You can't, do, you can't drink water out of a lump of clay. But when it's fashioned and when it's worked on, when it's crafted, it begins to do more and more what it was determined to do in the first place. And the determination is the potter. The work is being done by the potter. The work is being done by God in your life. His Holy Spirit should be living and active in the believer's life. And it's working through the word. Many times in the Bible, we read from John and the teaching of Jesus on the emphasis of the word doing the work. In Ephesians, it's the washing of water by the word. It's, and, and as the word begins to work and shape a Christian's life, now that Christian becomes profitable to do things for God, to bring glory to God that he or she could not previously do. The transformation has not been without purpose. The transformation has been with purpose. And now something remarkable has happened. Something that was previously useless has become useful. And that's the transformation that God is bringing about in our lives. But the part that we didn't touch was the final part of the verse. That he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And it's this forward-looking element of the gospel that I want to make sure we don't neglect here. It's one thing to say, in the here and the now, I want my life to be transformed by the work of God. In the here and the now, I want to be profitable to God. I want to work for God. Right now, I want to be useful. But the Bible, when it talks of a, a, an individual's life, and when it talks of life in general, is a forward-looking um, I want to start then by just trying to be clear about the gospel because I want to land here too. So I want to make some statements to frame how we're going to talk about this this morning. And then we're going to spend, again, much of our time in the word. But the statements that I want to make, just to be clear about what the gospel is, the gospel is good news in that you are a sinner and you have sinned against God. You have done evil things. In Sunday school this morning, it so happened that we were upon Second Samuel and we were reading about David and Bathsheba. And of all the heroic things that David does, you know, I can't think of any reason for God to include such a pivotal chapter in his word than to tell us David is a sinner, the very worst kind of sinner in need of salvation, in need of redemption, in need of forgiveness. You are, you are a sinner and, and so am I. This creates a problem in that God is a righteous God. He's not a sinful God. He's not like the Greek gods who had their own fallacies. He's not like the Roman gods who, who, who made their own mistakes. That's not, that is not the real God. The real God is righteous. He is not sinful. He is not evil. Evil cannot exist in His presence. It cannot endure in His presence. Um. He is not like you and I to that extent. We were created in God's image, but when we sin, certainly in Adam and then practically in our lives, 
we embrace a character of our lives that is not from God. You and I will stand before this righteous God when we die. And it will be our sin that stands out like a sore thumb before Him. We'll look at our lives today and we'll say, well, I'm not that bad of a person. He's a pretty good guy. She's a pretty good person. You know, we'll talk like that casually. Because we are so familiar with our own failings, we barely hold others accountable around us. And even when we do, we know we're playing kind of the hypocrite. We should know that. We get mad when someone lies to us and we don't take account of half the lies that we tell. So when I say that we'll stand before God, And it will be our sin that brings about the focus of God's judgment. That is a strange thing to us. And when we furthermore take it to its right doctrinal place, that the judgment of God will mean eternity in hell for you and I. To us, that seems extreme. Extreme. Because again, we look at this through the eyes of a sinner. But folks, and I know we know this, But I'm going to say it again in case we forget. God is not like us. We see our sin as just faux pas, character deficiencies, mistakes. God looks at our sin and he sees the rebellion of creation against the one true creator who has given us life and we have thrown it back in his face with our own evil. This will not go unpunished. And yet, if hell seems extreme to us, salvation is even more so. If we look at God's judgment of sin, that it would equate eternity in hell, and we say, that is extreme. We can't relate to that God. His plan of salvation is even more extreme. In that this plan of his is by way of his great love for sinners who he would otherwise condemn. He has sent his one and only son into this place to be executed by sinful people. So that he could stand in the place of sinners and bear the wrath of God. So that these sinners who executed the only son of God might be saved. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. You read in the book of Acts, weeks, not months, not years, weeks after the crucifixion of Jesus, Peter is standing up and preaching to the same crowd that executed the only Son of God. And God saves thousands of people that day and the church begins. So if we look at God and we say that the idea of judging sin with eternal damnation is extreme, salvation is more so. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then John 3.16. This is why people hold up the John 3.16 signs at sporting events and and do all. It's because of the simplicity. 
the extremism of God expressed in a simple verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I have a son. I have just one. I'm not trading him for any of you. I'm not sending him to go to prison for any of you. I'm not sending him to the executioner's place for any of you. This is extreme, but it's extreme by God because he knows his power in Jesus Christ to conquer the grave by way of Jesus' sinless life. Death cannot hold him. And we have our promise of eternal life through the resurrection of the dead in Jesus. If you believe that the death of Jesus has paid the price of your sin and that God has raised Jesus up from the dead, by this same power, He will raise you from the dead and you will be saved. God will accept you. Verse, verse 13 of Romans 10, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the gospel that Paul is going about the ancient world and trying to share with people, and he ends up arrested. This is the gospel that the Philippians are trying to embrace and live in, and they're being arrested and mistreated in Philippi. And this is the gospel and the fellowship in the gospel that Paul means when he talks about how the Philippians are partakers of the fellowship of this gospel with him. It's a very simple message, but it speaks of extreme things. Now, in verse 6, when we talk about the day of Jesus Christ, that is a future day. It is the day when Jesus Christ, who is already resurrected from the dead, will return to the earth. That is the day when Christian people, when God's people who have died and are buried in the ground right now, it's on the day of Jesus Christ that they will resurrect and receive new bodies. It's on the day of Jesus Christ that the unquestionable power of God in Christ will be displayed undeniably to the rest of the world. There will be no more atheists on the day of Jesus Christ. There will be no more contrary opinions on the day of Jesus Christ. There will be no more mocking and ridiculing and laughing at God or His people on the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ is when the Lord returns in power. And it is that day that Paul is looking forward to when he says that God will continue to work in his people until that day. That day, there will be no more sin in Reggie Osborne. There won't be any more death in Reggie Osborne. That day is the culmination of God's work that he's doing in my life. And he tells the Philippians, we can look forward to this. The Bible is a forward-looking book. Um, in fact, what I would like to focus on for just a little bit here is the idea of investment. Now, when I say the word investment, um, you might think of lots of different things. You might think of, you know, 401ks and IRAs and savings accounts and stock markets and mutual funds. Um, but the idea of investment is not primarily or even particularly about preparing to retire someday. The idea of investment is the idea of I'm going to sacrifice 
now for the hope of something to come, for the hope of something in the future. I'm going to invest, I'm going to give, I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to put something that otherwise might be of use to me now for the hope of something to come. Many of the parables in the Bible are agricultural in nature. You think of the parable of the sower, and the sower is out and he's scattering seed, and you know some of the seed grows and some of the seed doesn't, and the idea is when you're scattering seed, you're just scattering around and you don't know where it's going to grow and, and where it won't. There's an investment of resource and an investment of energy with the hope that there will be growth out of it, and yet the unpredictability, the uncertainty of where exactly that growth might be. Um, and a farmer, in many ways, is investing every season. Um, they have insurance policies that farmers can buy to try to limit the risk of investing. It's more of a modern-day thing, but even then, when a farmer works, when agricultural you know, people set their hands to plows or tractors, when they tend to animals, when they deal with, with new chicks or when they deal with new pigs or when they deal with new cows... It's an investment. You're investing time and resources and money, and you're going to work hard at it with the hope of a return. The idea of investment is central to the Scriptures. Um, I'm going to read from several different passages, a few verses from each. You can try to keep up with me if you'd like to. Uh, The first one is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 5 through 8. This one's particularly interesting because in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is prophesying about the day of the Lord. He's prophesying about the day of Jesus Christ. The exact same day in mind in Philippians 1.6. Now, we're not going to look at everything Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40 about that day, but notice how in this passage about the day of the Lord, there's the idea of investment. Listen to what it says. This is verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Now, I've already told you, that's what the day of the Lord is about. There'll be no more mockers or ridiculers of Jesus on that day. Right now, to many people in the world, Jesus is not very glorious. Jesus is not worth serving with your life right now. To a great many people in the world, he's, he gets made fun of, he gets mocked in cartoons, he gets ridiculed on late night shows. Jesus is a joke. But on the day of the Lord, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? What do you want me to say about the day of the Lord? Here it is. Say this, Isaiah. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. In other words, on the day of the Lord, the great thing that will be revealed is that all the splendor and all the glory and all the greatness and all the beauty of human beings will be found to be temporary. And under the exposure of the glory of God at the return of Jesus Christ, it will wither away as if it never existed. People will look at what they have worked for and what they have attained and at the glory of their life, and the beauty of their life, 
and when they compare it to the reality of the eternal God returning to visit them in judgment, it will all be found to be temporary and not worthy of the investment that it was. But what is worthy of investment? What does it say? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. There's this forward-looking nature that Christians and people are being called to respond to. That this life that we live in now, this is temporary. This should not be the focus. This should not be the aim. In other words, we should not be about our own self-glory or our own self-prosperity. These things should not be where we're at because these things are like grass. They fade. In 2 Corinthians 4, I just want to read verses 17 and 18 to you from 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to this. Now, that was the Old Testament. That was Isaiah. Okay? The message doesn't change much here. This is Paul talking about his own suffering. And he says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now, what does that mean? It wasn't for a moment. Paul's affliction went on for decades. What does he mean, for a moment? He means in comparison to the Word of God and to the kingdom of God. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's the comparison that makes right now seem like just a moment in time. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, don't Focus on what you see with your eyes because what you see is temporary. Look at the next verse. The things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, he's talking about his body, his earthly house, this flesh and blood. If our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. That's coming on the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, I go out and I play softball and I limp around the bases and I am reminded of this earthly tent that is breaking down. And it's not what it was. And I watch... Young people, like the ones who were running around the outfield yesterday, and they are not breaking down yet, not the way I am, but it gets worse for me, doesn't it? It does. And Paul is saying, even in my suffering and my affliction now, we don't look at the things which are seen. We focus our lives on the things that are unseen, what the Spirit of God is doing in the lives of the people that we are serving and ministering to. What God's judgment of our lives is and not what our jailer's judgment is, not what the people's judgment is, not what the mob's judgment is, not what our friend's judgment is. We look at the judgment of God in our life, the judgment that is not seen. People in the world make it very clear what their judgment about us is. This is stupid. What are you doing here on a Sunday morning? You have better things to do with your time. And even if they will not overtly say that, they say it with their attendance. I have better things to do with my time. We know their verdict. But Paul is concerned with God's verdict. Psalm 103, verses 15 through 19. As for man, his days are like grass. 
As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. On Friday, I went uh, and spent a lot of time with my mom and dad. I hadn't spent a lot of time with them in a while. And like I said, I'm getting old now. I don't want to ride a thousand roller coasters at Kings Island. So I found myself sitting with the old people at a picnic table at Kings Island while my kids ran around and uh, jumped on roller coasters. And I was perfectly content doing that. It, was, it didn't bother me in the slightest. I had ridden a few and that was enough. And I was talking to my dad and I don't think I had ever asked him. And I, it just came to mind. I said, um, how did, because my dad's mom and dad are very different people. Like my grandparents... My, my grandpa has gone on to be with the Lord. They're very different people. And I asked, how did they come to, to be together? And he told me the story. I'd never heard it before. He had to stop and think. And he said, yeah, and I'm not sure about this part. I'm not sure. I don't remember. My grandpa's been dead for 10 years, 11 years, something like that. Already, the details about his life are fading into oblivion, even among his firstborn son, and his grandchildren don't even know them. Let me read you again from the Psalms. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. Look at how much I flourish. And God says, like a flower in the field. That's how long this is going to last. For the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. God's mercy, his loving kindness to us in salvation is everlasting upon those who fear him. Man's glory, like a flower in the field. But man's glory in Christ, everlasting because of the mercy which God will bestow on him forever. And, in case that wasn't enough, not only is God's mercy everlasting, His righteousness to children's children. Such is the value of Jesus Christ. To such as keep His covenant. We're under a new covenant with God, whereby faith we are saved. Um, a couple more. Matthew 6, verse 19. On the idea of investment. This is from Jesus, so we've heard from we have heard from Isaiah, we have heard from Paul, we have heard from David. Two more of these from the Lord, one here in Matthew 6, verse 19. Some people hear this and they hear condemnation and criticalness on behalf of the Lord. And maybe there is a sense of, this, of that, but this is compassion. This is the same Lord who looked at the rich man, having told him, to sell his possessions and follow him. And the rich man says no and turns away. And it says, but Jesus loved him. Like, this is compassion. And this is the words of Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is the same Lord who loved you and went to the cross for you. Here's the same warning, not to turn there, but in Revelation 3, speaking to his people, again, to his people. Revelation 3.15. This is to one of the churches that Jesus is writing to in the book of Revelation. I know your works, that you're neither cold or hot. 
I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And the whole idea is not about rich and poor, it's about investment. And if you know the story of the Laodiceans, they thought they were in good shape. And he's talking about investment. Look ahead. Buy things of gold and silver from me that will last eternally. It's the same Jesus in Revelation. That we find in Matthew 6, isn't it? It's the same. It's the same teacher. So the idea of investing is central to the scripture. From the old, from the new, and there are probably a hundred other passages. You're probably thinking of a few of them that I'm not thinking of. I want you to know, I want you to know that God takes this view too, and he has invested in us. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, we have this. This singular statement here, you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are not your own, you were bought with a price. What, what was the price for you? Jesus, God's only begotten Son. You were bought with the blood of Jesus. Now, um, many craftsmen um, are familiar with this idea um, of investing in something initially that you plan to work with until it's profitable and valuable to you. If you've remodeled a house, you've done something like this, right? You've, you've bought the materials, you've invested in, in a, and at some point when you go to do a major remodeling project, at least for me, maybe this doesn't happen to you. I, I know many of you have done these, I've done these. When you go to do a project, at some point, you, you, know, you buy all the stuff, and you get it delivered, and you look at that stuff, and you say, this stuff has cost me a lot of money. It's important to me that this goes well, <laughs> whatever I'm getting ready to do with it, right? Like, here is a pallet full of lumber, and I've spent a lot of money on this lumber. It needs to turn out somewhat like I'm imagining it's going to turn out. Here is, you know, two pallets of shingles. I really need to successfully get these on the roof, you know? I think you, you, some of you have been there, and I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but at some point early in the project, it hits me, okay, I have just spent $2,000 on that lump of material over there, and <laughs> so far, none of the project is done, you know, but there it's sitting right there, and if you can relate to that at all, consider God, who while you were yet sinners... <laughs> Paid the price of his only begotten son to redeem you to begin working on you. <laughs> and God has invested in you <laughs> at great cost. And this is the Ephesians part from last week. We are his workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus that we should walk in them. Not only has God invested in us, but God will glorify us. That seems strange. 
But Romans 8.30 says, Moreover, whom he predestined, we read about that from Ephesians last week, whom he chose before the foundations of the world, he also called. And the one he called, he justified. And the one he justified, he also glorified. And when I think of that, I settle on this. God will make something of my life. Something glorious. God will make something of my life. If I allow Him through the working of His Word and His hands and the Spirit inside of me, lead me. If I allow Him to lead, if I surrender, this is what we mean when we talk about surrendering your life to Jesus. It means if I allow the potter to put his hands on my life and to shape and form me, I may not know what the great works that, I may not know what eventually that's going to lead to, but I can be sure of this. He will get something worthy of his investment out of me. It will be glorious. I will be glorified in Christ. As God works. That's the sense of Philippians 1.6. I mean, Paul is not with the people in Philippi right now. He's not there. He's saying, even though I'm not there to oversee what's happening in your life, and I wish that I was. I long for you. I wish that I was there. But I know that God, who has begun a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it even into the day of Jesus Christ. I know He will do something glorious with your life. And I don't have to be there to do it. I know that God will do it. I don't know what you've made of your life or what you plan to make of your life, but whatever you're working on, it will not compare to what God does in the life of a person who has surrendered direction over to Him and who is simply willing to be shaped by the potter's hand. Now, as we close, I want to turn our attention to that process of our investment. In Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27, I think this is a good, succinct four verses here to see. Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27. Because in these verses, you see so clearly from Jesus what I'm talking about. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 24. It's Jesus talking to His disciples whom He loved. If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Now, many of you have heard that verse, and it just rolls through your consciousness now like, a, like the breath of a wind, but I want you to realize what it's saying. This is the investment. The direction of your earthly life Surrendered to the Lord is the investment. Let him deny himself, surrender, surrender direction of his life. Take up his own cross, that's the hint of sacrifice that this will require. And follow me, I will direct you. So the investment is, Reggie will not approach his family or his career or his his finances or what he does with his time or whatever it is 
I will not approach those things under the discretion of my own direction, but I will in all things, that's the Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. In all ways I will seek to stop daily, devotionally before God and consider, okay, I know what I've got on my list to do today. What does God want me to do? Lord, direct my paths. What do you want me to do? To where the chief question of my life does not become about how I can prosper here, or about how I can get this done, how I can do this, how I can do that. The chief question of my life becomes, what does God want me to do today? What does God want me to do in this? Lord, lead me. Lord, direct me. And that's right. That's a good investment because he's the one that you'll give an account to. I'm not suggesting you surrender the direction of your life to any other person. I'm not saying, hey, just do what your, your husband tells you. Hey, just do what your wife tells you with your life. Hey, just do what your parents tell you with your life. Hey, just do what I tell you with your life. Just do what some other teacher tells you to do with your life. No, no, no. I agree. You shouldn't let any of those other people rule your life. I just make one further addition to it. You shouldn't let yourself rule your life either. It should be the Lord. Verse 25, Jesus continues, Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I think here he does not simply mean martyrdom. I think here he means exactly what we're speaking of. The one who would keep and and maintain control, and maintain the direction. They'll lose their life, but the one who would lose, who would surrender their life to Jesus, who would take up the cross, and in there you get a hint of the death being referred to here, the one who would lose their life and seek only to follow the Lord's direction will find it. And then the warning, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Now we're back to investing. The most successful, self-directed life is not profitable at all in the end. The Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezos, the Bill Gates, the, the most successful, the most wealthy, the most glorious self-directed lives will ultimately be unprofitable in the end if they are in fact self-directed? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I mean, Jeff Bezos can buy himself a rocket to the moon, but he can't get himself into heaven. Only Jesus can do that. For the Son of Man, and here it is, this is the day of the Lord, right here in this passage. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each one according to His works. So this is not an anti-works message. If you let God direct your life, you will perform Christian works. But it's a message that is surrendering and investing. 
many of you have spent your lives seeking the approval of other people. I want a parent to be proud. I want a, a boss to be proud. I want people in the community to think well of me. I want to have a good reputation here, a good reputation there. Let me shatter many of those dreams for you. If you spend your life dedicated to Jesus Christ sacrificially, the world has already rendered a verdict on that, and it's not a good investment by their judgment. It's not a good investment. In Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees in John's gospel, he says, you seek the glory of men. You should be more concerned about what God thinks of you. Because the glory of men. I drove through New York um, a week ago, and um, I haven't spent much time in New York, um, very little. Um, and the time that I have spent, it's not like I'm walking around or anything. But I drove through New York, and um, I went by this little gas station in this really cluttered area of, but I think it was in Brooklyn. <laughs> That's how little I drive through New York. And right past the gas station, there was a chain-link fence, and it caught my eye, and it was super early in the morning. There's basically no one on the road. I was going to the airport to come home. And I looked across this chain-link fence, and it was a, it was a cemetery. And I'd never seen a cemetery like this before. The headstones were so close together. I mean, literally, there's, and they all were very small. Even the ones that looked newer, they were like this, and then like a foot and a half away, this. And I slowed the car down. There was no one else on the road, and I looked, and it was as far as I could see in there. And there, you know, I'm used to the cemeteries around here where there might be, you know, a good eight to ten feet in rows. This was like three feet row after, I don't even know how they fit caskets in there, row after row after row, right on top of each other. And I got to thinking, you know, this is New York, right? I mean, sometimes I look at the cemetery across the way and I think, it looks like they're kind of running out of room back there. New York has a different level of running out of room. And I thought about that. And so I got home and I, I looked at the history of, of what that's like in New York. And this is actually a question that people have asked. Like, do we have enough room to bury everybody? And they're assured they do. The city can bury all of its residents using Hart Island. Now, some of you will know what Hart Island is. Some of you won't. Hart Island is an island that exists. It's in New York City. It's in the you know it's part of the part of the city. It's under the mayoral control and jurisdiction of the city. But it's basically an island of land where they bury all of the people who don't have anyone to speak for them when they die. So dead body, and they, they bury people there. And they, uh, they'll, they'll bury up to 150 people in one mass grave at one time, no embalming in pine boxes, and they'll bury 150 people, and then they'll cover them up, and they don't embalm, and they don't use pine boxes because by not doing, or the, and they use pine boxes because over a 25-year period of time, they'll be able to reuse that mass grave again. It'll be totally decomposed. That's why they don't embalm, and they use pine. And so the answer, especially it came up during the pandemic with people panicking, wondering, hey, could we even, do we have, are we prepared for something that was, and, and the, the answer was from the New York Authority, yeah, we have room because every 25 years we can cycle all, all 150 people in this grave to the next grave to the next grave. And, and just, I mean, nothing wrong with that. It's just, think about it. That's the glory of man. 
That's a self-directed life. Um, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, the love of God through Jesus, the blessings of God through His covenant to Christians, that all who believe on the Lord will be saved is everlasting. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, um, what can we say, sinners before an almighty God? What can we do at this point? We know that we deserve judgment even when we don't understand or can't relate to that sense of judgment. We've read from your word what the judgment is. It seems more than we can bear and and then we've read of the extreme measures that you've taken to redeem us, to save us. And what more can we say other than thank you from a gracious people to you, our loving God. Thank you. And yet, Father, in a group this big, I'm sure there are people here who have not surrendered their life to the direction of your son, Jesus. Father, I hope they don't hear any semblance of me pretending to know what they should do with their life or any judgment of what they've done with their life. You know my heart that there's no ounce of that in there and yet it is my, my deepest desire this morning. What has dominated my mind for two weeks of preparing to preach is that they will see in your son Jesus a man worthy of the trust that we place in him when we surrender our lives to his direction. That they will see in your honorable name a name trustworthy, a name worth living and dying for, a name worth having convictions for. And that those who are here today who have not believed in you, who have not made any profession of faith, who have not been baptized, who have not announced to the world or to the church that they are yours, that they'll be convicted of the temporary nature of whatever it is they're in pursuit of. These pursuits will not last. And Father, thank you for the opportunity to share with them today. Save them as you have saved us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.